Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review, and joining me uh, today is Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. How about yourself? Doing all right. It's, it seems like it finally cooled down a, like a smidge in Kansas City. I don't know how it is. You're in the south, so it's probably hot all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm visiting my parents in Atlanta this weekend, or this week, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't go outside. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can't imagine. I, I I like visiting the South. I don't think I could tolerate living there. Uh, just too much for me. Uh, pinch hitting from Matthew Lamar, who's unable to join us this week, is Colin Jekyll. Colin, how are you doing today? Doing great, Max. Thanks for having me. How's your How's your summer? I know you've enjoyed a lot of good Royals baseball. Have you doing anything fun this summer? Yeah, we uh, we traveled a couple weeks ago. We went to Lake Okaboji, Iowa, and. We're there for like five days. The high was the highest it got there was eighty two degrees, so Oof. it was perfect. That's 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 nice. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Get, go somewhere cool in the summertime and get away from this Kansas City heat. Well, uh, speaking of hot, you know the Royals are I think tepid or I don't know lukewarm. Uh, they they've been playing better baseball. Um, they, over the last fifty games, they've they've won exactly half of them for and for the Royals, that's that's kind of a hot streak. Uh, and the last few weeks, I think in particular, I've gotten fans excited uh, because, you know, since the, the trade deadline, I don't know if you noticed, but the lineup has gotten noticeably younger. Uh, we've got a lot of young players. Uh, usually you can find five, six hitters in the lineup who are age 25 or younger. Of course, there's Bobby Witt Jr., but also Nick Prado is playing really well now. Vinny Pascantino, who had two home runs in a game and a doubleheader this week. Uh, you also have um, uh, MJ Melendez, of course, who's. Uh, even though he's had a little bit of a lull, he's starting to hit, he had a big weekend against Boston. Uh, and then you also have Michael Massey, who was called up after the after the trade deadline, and Nathan Eaton, who uh, who was called up as well. And uh, you know, Mike Matheny commented on on kind of the new vibe with the Royals. He said uh, after the the weekend against Boston, uh, "quote I don't think this has been a team low on energy, but as you bring in different people, it's a different energy." Uh, he also went on to say that uh, I think some kind of summarizing how I think a lot of Royals fans feel. He said, "quote we're quickly, all of us, and the whole fan base, falling in love with them. Uh, Jeremy, are you falling in love with these young baby royals? Uh, I don't know if I'm falling in love so much as uh, I, it was kind of love at first sight back when I saw most of those guys uh, in Toronto uh, about a month ago now, I guess. It's, it's just been... Uh, it's... It's just a whole different vibe, uh, as has been said. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, are the Royals hot when they they're playing 500, and you know if they're if they're playing Carlos Santana and Andrew Benintendi and Whit Merrifield and they're playing 500. No, that's not hot. That's you you pay veterans like that to win. Um, but when you got young guys like this and they're 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 still you know kind of getting adjusted to the league, they're all under 25, got their their best years probably ahead of them. Uh, then yeah, 500. It feels like oh yeah, this uh, this could be the start of something. It it really kind of feels like um, uh, I know Dayton Moore a few years ago said he doesn't want to say the word rebuild, but I feel like we might finally be at the rebuild. I feel like we've been we've been kind of they've been treading water with all these veterans and they finally got rid of most of them, and now now we're seeing the kids play. And it, it feels like a rebuild, and this is this is the fun part of a rebuild, is, is seeing everybody come up and 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 play their parts. You no, know, I think that's an important point. Is like if the Royals 
were playing 500 ball, but it was like Hunter Dozier and Andrew Benintendi and Carlos Santana playing well, and the young guys were struggling. You know, I I don't know if I'd feel that great about it. It'd be like, well, yeah, but that's that's the max they can do. You know, that they're not going to get any better. Um, and and I you I think you you make a good point. It's like the younger guys give us hope that this is the kind of the floor. Like they're capable of playing kind of 500 ball now. I just imagine a year from now when they are have a little more seasoning and they've got a little more experience. What they can do then. Uh, especially if we kind of maybe you know, improve upon the team in the off season, add some more veterans around them. Uh, so it does give a lot more hope. And, and you know, you mentioned the vibe, Colin. Uh, you know, it does seem like there's a different vibe around this team. And I don't know if that's what that says about how, how, how the vibe was before with the veterans like Whit Merrifield and Carlos Santana and Andrew Benintendi, but uh, there definitely does seem like there's some enthusiasm there that wasn't there before. Yeah, this team seems a lot looser. It seems like they're having more fun out there. Watching that game a little bit Saturday night uh, when Nick Prado hit that walk-off home run and how excited he was and how excited the team was. I mean, that that was really fun to watch. That uh, reverberated and that kind of connected with me because I, w- I was watching that game with some friends at a bar and I was pumped up and it was great to see these guys pumped up. And I'm like, okay, well, these guys are under club control for quite a while they're going to be here. The AL Central isn't the greatest right now. I think the Guardians might be in first as we speak, and they're only five games above 500 on the season. I mean, there's some there's real potential for that lineup in Kansas City. The young pitchers are starting to pitch well this uh, latter half of the season. The Central is there for the taking, and it's it's finally exciting. Uh, for the first time, probably since they flamed out in 2016. Yeah, and and you know, people. I think the obvious parallel people want to reach to is the 2011-12 Royals, where you had young Eric Hosmer, you had young Mike Mustakas, you had uh, young Salvador Perez, you had Lorenzo Cain and Alcides Escobar kind of breaking into the big leagues. You had uh, even guys like Greg Holland and 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 Calvin Herrera and Wade Davis. Uh, actually, Davis wouldn't be on the team yet, but Cal- Calvin Herrera and Greg Holland certainly. Uh, Jeremy, I think it's always tempting to, to kind of look back to that that group. Um, do you see those same parallels, or is there still some ways to go with this rebuild before we start talking about flipping the switch and, and building a, a championship team like we did before? Well, the I I, I guess I would kind of put a yellow light up, a little caution, a little uh, hit, pump the brakes just a little bit. Um, when those guys were coming up, we were talking about. Uh, one of the best farm systems uh, that that baseball had ever seen, certainly one of the best at the time. Uh, and, and when those guys came up, they were not just top Royals prospects. They were top prospects in all of baseball. Um, and they were coming up with guys like Alex Gordon was already there. Uh, and so there was, there was some stuff. There, there were some pieces already that they were kind of filling in around um, and, and some opportunities to fill in around them. The, the good news, though, is that as they're bringing these guys up and they're finding some success, and uh, is that I, I believe I saw somebody posted on Twitter that the Royals only have about thirty million guaranteed next year uh, in in salary, and obviously some of that's going to go uh, to arbitration and to rookie deals, but not a lot. Like you're probably talking topping out at fifty, I think, and. Uh, that leaves a lot of room to spend if you want to. Uh, you know, uh, I guess Juan Soto's not on the market quite yet. 
But <laughs> if they want to get a, a veteran starting pitcher to kind of fill in the gaps around uh, what they've been able to develop with the young guys, and the, the young pitching is coming on too. Um, we may not be giving enough credit there. Uh, just looking at Brady Singer's ERA, uh, looking at what Chris Bubich has been doing. Uh, there's been a, not only have they been succeeding, they haven't been walking guys. That's the crazy part to me is that they just suddenly stopped walking people. Um, so it might, it's, it's probably a little bit silly to be like, yes, this is exactly like 2011, 2012. But at the same time, like I get that. I get why you want to feel that way. And, and there's certainly reason to hope that it could be that and that they they could start to to try and fill in the gaps and uh and see what they can do in the next it may be even a couple of years maybe next year maybe the year after uh actually be competitive oh yeah i'm glad you mentioned the pitching because i'm i'm old enough to remember another rebuild before the 2011 rebuild and that was in the early 2000s we all got excited because there was a youth movement that had carlos beltran and Jermaine Dye, and Mike Sweeney, and Johnny Damon, and, uh, you know, a couple other names. And that didn't come to fruition. And why, you know, the lineup was great. They were top five in the American League in offense, uh, set a club record, but the pitching was terrible. I mean, the pitching was just god-awful. They blew, like, 26 saves in 2000. Uh, And the pitching never really came to fruition, even though they had some top-ranked prospects. Uh, So there is, and with the more recent rebuild in 2011, they didn't necessarily develop a lot of starting pitching. I mean, Danny Duffy certainly, and later on, Yordano Ventura. But they were able to make some shrewd acquisitions. Guys like Irvin Santana, guys like James Shields, Jeremy Guthrie, uh, Jason Vargas when they needed to make a push. Uh, and then they had that great bullpen. So there was the pitching there to kind of uh, uh, ex- uh, kind of complement the, the young hitters. And so this will, you know, this will kind of come down to pitching. I mean, I think I do have a lot of faith in these young hitters. I think they've got a good, solid core. I mean, I... I don't know if like, necessarily all six of the rookies in the lineup are going to make it. You know, Kyle Isbell has struggled this year. We don't know what Michael Massey can do with the bat. Um, you know, Nick Prado, we'll see what he does over a full season. Uh, but I think there's a lot to like with the hitters, and certainly they could complement some of these guys with, with other, you know, like you said, other veteran bats um, because they do have some, I think you're right, they have some payroll to play with. But uh, pitching is what it's going to come down to, and you're right. I think there's been a lot of encouraging signs from the pitching staff. Uh, thank you, Cal Eldred. Uh, but yeah, Brady Singer looks—he's been nails lately. I mean, I—I'll admit, I was—I've been pretty skeptical, skeptical of him. I thought his ceiling was pretty limited, and he looks like he could have ace stuff. Now we'll see if he does turn into that kind of a pitcher over a full season. But over the last five, six, seven starts, he's—he's he's been pretty close to an ace. I mean, it depends on how you want to define it, but maybe a one A type pitcher for that stretch. Chris Bubich looks really solid, and he's a guy again. I was pretty skeptical on just because. It's hard to live and die with a with a fastball changeup when you leave so many pitches up in the zone. And yet, um, I mean, tonight against Chicago, he's pumping 95 miles an hour with the fastball and doing a good job changing speeds. That's that that'll play, as Alec Lewis says. Um, and then Daniel Lynch, you know, he's had his ups and downs, but you know, I, I certainly uh, think when he's on, he's, he has probably higher upside than either of those two pitchers. So there is, I think, a lot to like out of what you've seen out of the pitching staff. Oh, and, and like you said, they're, they, they're going to have some, some, some flexibility there. Colin, what do you think about the state of the pitching right now? Um, you know, certainly we see a lot of young hitters getting the job done. Uh, what They had a game last week with, with all 12 runs were driven in by rookies. But the pitching, uh, you know, they've had a nice stretch here. Do you think they can keep, kind of keep it up and finish strong and have some momentum going into next year? Yeah, I hope, I hope that they can. 
Bubich, as you stated, he's pitching really well tonight right now against the White Sox. Um, Singer's been doing great. He had a, struck out 10 in consecutive starts, or at least 10 consecutive starts. Had a chance to join Kevin Apier as the only Royals pitcher to do it three straight starts. Didn't get it done, but he's still pitching well. I think he, in his last outing yesterday, struck out six, but he still only gave up one earned run in just over seven innings, so he's doing very well. The problem I see with those guys is even with Lynch having the most upside on a team that should be competing for a division title or a playoff spot, at best, those are like a three, four, and five starters. They don't have top-of-the-line starting pitchers. They don't have an ace. They don't have a stopper. And I'm not sure that this organization is going to go out and spend the type of money that they need to to bring somebody like that in. Maybe it'll be a trade using one of the young bats, a surplus of the young bats, to go out and get somebody like that. But right now, that's what they need, uh, even if these young guys keep it up. I just don't see them getting as high as, you know, being an ace, being a number two starter. The Royals just need, well, I say just, they need that. That's not a just type of thing, but that's a pretty big need. Unfortunately, I just don't see either of those three or anybody else in the minor leagues right now ascending to being a number one starter. Yeah, I think they kind of need that to happen internally. Like they need a Brady Singer or a Daniel Lynch or someone that's not on our radar right now to kind of step up because, you know, Jeremy, you're right. They do have money to, to deal with, but typically with those kind of frontline starting pitchers, you're talking about, you know, $100 million investments, you know, six years, seven years, uh, unless you're unless you're willing to go for like a short-term gamble with a Noah Syndergaard or something like that. And a lot of times those guys are gonna, aren't going to be willing to sign with the Royals. They want to gamble with a bigger market or a team that's, you know, more willing to contend on a year, year-in-year-out basis. So, the way you get a frontline starting pitcher is to make a big trade. Now, the difference between now and 10 years ago when they acquired James Shields is 10 years ago, they had, you know, even when they graduated Hosmer and Mustakas and Salvi and all those guys, they still had a top five farm system. They still had Will Myers. They still had Jake Odorizzi. They still had uh, uh, Mike Montgomery. Uh, they still had a number of young guys that uh, they felt, you know, they felt good about their depth in the farm system. Now, and you know, we don't have to get too much in the farm system right now. Uh, I'll probably have someone on next week to talk about the state of the farm system. But, you know, Kylie McDaniel at ESPN had his organizational rankings after the trade deadline. He ranked the Royals 22nd, which isn't great. Uh, Baseball America has two Royals in their top 100 now. Uh, Vinny Pascantino and Nick Prado. And, of course, by the end of the year, both of those players will have graduated. Now, maybe Gavin Cross, the first-round pick. This year, we'll jump onto that list. Will another name jump onto that list from the Royals organization? Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's an obvious name. Maybe a Ben Kaderna if he finishes strong. Uh, maybe a Carter Jensen if he finishes strong. Uh, but there aren't a lot of the, the the point is there aren't. This isn't as deep of a farm system to make that kind of trade right now. Uh, so I don't know, Jeremy. Do you think the Royals are kind of poised to make some big to make a big splash this off season? Will they kind of trust the process and just kind of see where things go next year and maybe, you know, keep some flexibility? How do you think, you know, I know it's really early, but how do you kind of see things playing out uh, going into next year? 
So uh, the, the bringing up the minor leagues is a really good point, and that's that's kind of the extension of what I what I was saying with the with the the minor leagues uh, are not where they were in 2011 and 2012. Is that, as you said, they brought up all those guys and they filled out their roster with these promising rookies, and then they still had guys in the minor leagues that they could either call up or trade. And they right now the the minor leagues feel kind of empty. Um, you've got Drew Waters is hitting the tar out of the ball in AAA, and uh, that's the only guy I can think of right now that's really succeeding at AAA. And, of course, he's had his struggles, and, and it's only been like a couple of weeks that he's been doing this. So that that's still a really big question mark. Um, I, as for what they're going to do going forward, I had kind of predicted that they were going to make a big splash trade or signing um in this past offseason because i felt like they were looking at it as kind of their 2012 to 2013 offseason which is of course when they traded for wade davis and james shields um obviously they did not do that but that feeling still holds true especially as these young guys are playing and especially as i continually think about i i don't think a day goes by where i don't think about john sherman talking about how the status quo will not do and uh and i think you talk about when you say something like uh wait and see that's that's that screams status quo to me right um and i i think you know if they it doesn't guarantee they're gonna make a move because your nature is still your nature and and dayton moore may not be the general manager but jj piccolo has certainly worked with dayton moore for a long time uh they obviously see things uh in a lot of similar ways but uh, I, I guess I would give it like a 50-50 shot that they, they do something big. Um, I One thing that I, I keep thinking about um, as Colin was talking about how, you know, uh, as you're talking about the, the pitchers, the big league, like ace pitchers that you want to go out and get in free agency, you got to give big money and you got to give them a lot of years and the Royals don't like to do that. But I think about when Dayton Moore first got here, one of the first things he did was sign Gil Mesh for five years, 55 million. It was the biggest deal the Royals had ever given out. Uh, at the time and and i you know so he has this history of also doing that when it seems appropriate and so i i i don't know what they're gonna do but i i feel like there's a 50 50 shot that they just really go out there and say okay uh our jobs are kind of on the line right now if we don't get something to happen here real quick and these rookie hitters are doing their jobs so let's fill out this rotation with a with a pitcher or two uh, you know, let's add one more really good veteran right-handed bat and, and let's go for it and let's try and save our jobs. Uh, but, you know, time will tell, I suppose. Yeah, another way they, I think they could be creative with that with that fl- uh, flex- payroll flexibility is, you know, teams looking to kind of dump, dump money, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there's some opportunity. And I think this ownership group, it seems like they may be able to be a little more flexible with that kind of stuff than perhaps the Glass family, but maybe they take on a bad contract in addition to taking a, a decent starting pitcher, or maybe a starting pitcher who's a bit of a reclamation project, or um, you know some kind of scenario like that where they they get they take on money from another team that's looking to to shed payroll and get a, a value out of it. like the Twins, uh, you know, got Sonny Gray for for kind of nothing last year, or Wade Miley, the Cubs picked up Wade Miley last year. Now those those deals, you know, the Miley deal didn't exactly work out, but you know they've got a chance to maybe pick up some guys for for not you know without having to give up uh, prospects, which I think are a little bit more coveted in the Royals organization than perhaps money at this point. So yeah, I think that, that it would give them a, I think an opportunity to do a lot of different things 
Uh, so it could be a pretty interesting offseason uh, for the Royals this year. Um, I did want to talk a little bit while we're talking about the rookies, uh, Bobby, about Bobby Wood Jr. And, um, you know, he's he started the year at third, moved to short. Um, he's back at third now. Uh, defense has been, I mean, great at times. He's made some phenomenal plays. He's also had some plays where he's kind of kind of muffed some, you know, not routine balls, but, but uh, you know, balls that he probably a lot of guys should have had or would have had. Uh, I guess, Colin, how, do you, how are you feeling about Bobby Wood's defense at this at halfway through his rookie season? And is there, is there a spot in the, uh, on, the, on the field that you'd rather see him play in the future? His defense is less than ideal. Uh, our colleague uh, Matt had an article dropped today. I think it came out today about going into Bobby Witt's uh, defense over at short, and it is pretty bad. I think it's the worst compared to every other starting shortstop in the league. And the only saving grace I can think about that is he's still so young. This is still a team learning to win. The Royals can afford to keep him at shortstop for him to figure it out without really harming the team too much. I mean, there is going to come a time where you want to, where every, every game counts and you can't be having him botch things then. However, I still think they've got this year and probably next year to have him figure out if he's truly a starting shortstop or if he needs to move over to third base. He's played some third already and he's been much better at third base this season than he has been at short. Another thing the Royals have to consider is their kind of glut of infielders up the middle. You've got Michael Massey, you've got Nicky Lopez, Assuming he comes back next season, you've got Mondesi, and then you've got Bobby Witt Jr. That's four guys for two spots. So maybe with that roster crunch, it does make sense to move him to third base early, uh, especially considering they traded Emmanuel Rivera at the trade deadline for Luke Weaver, and they really don't have a a viable third baseman on the roster at this point other than Dozier and Bobby Wood Jr. Yeah, I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of a nice problem to have so many guys up the middle, but yeah, that's interesting. They don't have anyone in the future for third, so it kind of makes sense to move them over to third. What do you think, Jeremy? Is is Bobby Wood Jr.'s future as a shortstop, or is he the, the, the future third baseman of the Kansas City Royals? Uh, I, I think if we had to make that call right this second, uh, he would it would make the most sense to move him to third base. He's had a little bit more success there. Um, I think his real value comes from his bat and his legs, uh, not his defense. Even if he ends up being a good defender at shortstop, that's not that's not his his value to this team. His value to this team is is to hopefully become a superstar hitter and an offensive playmaker. Um, so it, it it might make sense to just move him over to third and say, you know what. Let's take some pressure off of you defensively. Let's take some pressure off of your legs. Uh, let's make sure that you, you're here, you've got your energy, you're here for the long haul, and you're ready to drive in some runs. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I feel like this is one of those things where Bobby Witt Jr.'s mentality matters more right this second than, than the defensive numbers. Because as, as Colin mentioned there, uh, you know, they've got time. They're not going to win right now. 
his defense is not going to be the difference between them going to the postseason this year or not going to the postseason this year. They're not going. So you can let him see if he can figure it out. If that's like if it's really important to him that he plays shortstop, then I think that's what you want to do. If he doesn't really care, if it's not a big deal to him what position he's playing, then I think you might you probably should move him over to third base, call it done. Um, and he may ultimately end up at third base anyway if uh, he can't figure out how to improve his defense a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think you're bringing up a good point. They have a lot of time. Like, they don't have to figure this out. If he makes a ton of errors this year, it's not hurting you because you're already far back in the standings. And, look, it's not. it takes a while for defensive metrics to kind of stabilize a little bit. I don't. I don't know. Five hundred. Five hundred innings at shortstop, is is that representative yet? Um, and I'll push back a little bit and say that, you know, he certainly has the skills. He has the range and the arm to play shortstop. And to me, that's. I think that's probably more important than the errors right now. Because if you don't have the range to play shortstop, then there's no. You're wasting your time playing because you're never going to be get better at range necessarily. But but errors, I think you can clean that up. And so I think he should stick at shortstop because he can grow out of the errors. Uh, and he does have the physical abilities to play the position. And we do have some examples of guys making a lot of errors early in the career and kind of playing their way out of it. So the, the most recent example I can think of is Marcus Semyon of the, I think it was at the A's at that, at that point. He made 35 errors his rookie season uh, at shortstop uh, and ended up being a pretty passable shortstop. He did eventually move to second base and win a gold glove there, but he was, for a couple years there, he was a decent shortstop defensively. Uh, and so I think you can kind of work your way out of it. Now, some guys don't. Uh, older Royals fans may remember Jose Offerman, who made a million errors for the Dodgers at shortstop. The Royals acquired him for pretty much nothing because he was such a pain in the butt and a, and a defensive liability for the Dodgers. But the Royals said, hey, let's try him at first base, and then they tried him at second base. And you know what? He was actually a pretty good defender over there and ended up being a pretty valuable player. Um I think it's worth sticking with Bobby at shortstop for now just because with his bat, uh, his ability to play a premium position like that, if he's able to, to, to at least be close to average, that's extremely valuable. I mean, that's you're talking about a 5-6 win player uh, if, he, if he can hit the way we think he can hit. Uh, so I think it's well worth trying it out. But certainly he has the bat to stick at third. Um, he has the, I think, the, 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 the defensive chops to play third. And as Colin points out, I mean, who's pushing him off third right now? There's no one. I mean, Emmanuel Rivera, they didn't. They certainly didn't feel like he was the guy. I don't see Michael Massey moving over to third. I don't think Nicky Lopez is an answer at third. Uh, I look at the minors. I don't see a whole lot of answers until Caden Wallace is ready. So let's find out if, if Bobby can play short. And if we have to move him to third, that, that should be a, a, a fairly smooth transition. And then we can we kind of judge them. But right now, when you're in the kind of the, this part of the rebuild, like position where where guys play at what position doesn't concern me as much. I think it's kind of the time to figure out can MJ Melendez cut it in left field? Can Nick Prado can play a little left field? Can Bobby Witt play short or third? Uh, this is the time to find out because the games are gonna hopefully the games will start mattering a lot more in the next couple of years and this can kind of be your year to try things out. Well, let's take a break when we come back. We'll talk about the saddest departures in Royals history right after this. All right, well, this week, Cullen had an interesting article about the where he ranked the, the saddest departures in Royals history. Uh, Cullen, do you want to talk a little bit about that article and, and what, what you came up with for some of the top, uh, top uh, bum, biggest bummers, I guess, uh, for uh, players departing in Royals history? 
Okay, yeah. Uh, well, with the Whit Merrifield trade, you know, Whit's been around the Royals. He, he came up after the World Series teams, and he's just kind of been one of those guys that I think players go to, or excuse me, fans went to go see play every day. So when he did get moved, it was kind of an end of an era. I had hoped that he would be around the Royals when they finally started contending again, but it just didn't work out that way. So it was kind of, as you said, it was a bummer to see him move on. Uh, that kind of got me thinking about other Royals who it was sad when they moved on. And unfortunately uh, with the Royals, there's a, there are a lot of players who move on because small market team, you, you can't really afford to, invest the, the, those lengthy contracts in guys once they hit a certain age you, because that would just almost doom the team. I know the team hasn't done well anyway, but it would be so much, it could be so much worse with uh, kind of a contract like that weighing him down. Uh, he wasn't on there because he retired, and I was kind of just talking about guys who were traded, released, or signed elsewhere in free agency. But I think about that Alex Gordon contract and how that didn't, that kind of impeded the Royals uh, from doing some other things that probably could have helped keep their window open a little bit longer. Um, and the, it, those types of things just made it so the Royals couldn't keep guys from that 2015 World Series team like Lorenzo Cain, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, uh, Wade Davis was eventually moved on. So that's kind of where I got that idea. And of course there's been a, there's been something like that going on since I've been a Royals fan back to the early, you know, thousands, early aughts. And uh, even before then, I think the earliest one I had on there was uh, Lou Pinella, who was the rookie of the year in the Royals inaugural season, left and won two titles with the dreaded New York Yankees. So let's talk about the top of your list. Uh, you've got a couple recent uh, players at the top, and I think – uh, the most, you know, a guy we just saw last weekend at the top, and Eric Hosmer. How'd you come up with Hosmer as the the saddest departure in Royals history? I actually talked to a lot of my friends, a lot of Royals fans, and it was the consensus from talking to those guys and ladies that Eric Hosmer was the one that really hit them, and the one that, uh, you know, he was the guy when he left that it kind of showed fans who had just started. Well, they'd always been fans, but they really got their attention again in those 2013 through, you know, 17 seasons. And then you see the leader of that team leave, and it just is kind of a gut punch. Um, especially when he was the leader of the team that won it all. He had that big scoring play in the clinching game of the World Series when he scored on a ground ball to tie the game against the Mets. He's just he was iconic for that world series and seeing him leave for Richard deal for another team, just, uh, just kind of deflated some fans. It, it, as you guys said earlier, uh, maybe Dayton doesn't like to use the word rebuild, but when Eric Cosmer left, that's what signaled a rebuild. Yeah. I think part of the gut punch too, is the Royals came very close to keeping him. I mean, they made a pretty competitive offer by a lot of accounts and it just came down to, you know, a, a certain amount of dollars between their, their offer and the Padres offer. Um, yeah, this generated a lot of discussion on our, 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 our uh, site and a lot of people disagreed. Uh, Jeremy, do you disagree or do you agree with the assessment of Eric 
Hosmer as the saddest departure, or do you have a, a sadder departure in Orioles history that affected you more? So it's funny. Um, I remember during the offseason where Eric Hosmer signed with the Padres, I was too busy celebrating that the Padres managed to outbid the Royals for <laughs> Hosmer to be too sad that he was gone. Um, I liked Eric Hosmer. I still like Eric Hosmer. I think he's a perfectly nice guy. Uh, but I really got tired of that ground ball straight to the second baseman. Didn't even need to shift him. He just went straight to the second baseman. Um, so I, I was ready to move on from Eric Hosmer. Uh, my favorite player from the from the playoff team, as uh, many people will know, is Mike Moustakis. But honestly, his departure didn't make me all that sad either because, you know, I kind of, 2017, I, I had my emotions. I was ready to move on. And then he came back. And then he set the home run record. <laughs> Um, and then, and then they traded him and, uh, and, and that was a little bit of a bummer, but you know, I got more Eric or excuse me, more Mike Moustakis than I never thought I was going to get. So that, that, that numbed the pain a bit for me. Um, probably the, uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest, the saddest Royals departure for me is one that doesn't actually show up on this list anywhere, uh, which is Danny Duffy getting traded last year. Uh, just because, uh, you know, he, he, he had that famous bury me Royal line. Um, and he seemed like such a genuinely good guy and he went through so much with these teams. He was here for the bad times. He was here for the good times. And then he was here for the bad times again. Um, and, and he was, he was around for just all of it and, and, and losing him. It didn't signal a rebuild like losing Eric Hosmer did, but it did kind of signal the end of an era. Um, and I, I still, I still miss Danny Duffy in a way that I, I don't miss any of the other guys nearly as much. Yeah, I think for the 2000, I guess the championship core guys, like Moustakas, Hosmer, um, Kane, even Duffy a little bit, even though he left later, I think I had kind of mentally prepared myself. I think I said, okay, well, they won it all, and it's all going to fall apart here. And I was, I, I don't know, I was kind of at peace with it in a way. Uh, so I don't know if there were like sad departures for me. For me, for me, the sad departures, and maybe it's where because of my age and because I was a younger Royals fan, but for me, the real, the real gut punches were, number one, Bo Jackson, who you have ranked number seven, because, uh, you know, so for those who don't remember, Bo Jackson played football, and he got injured in a playoff game for the Raiders that effectively severed his hip, uh, the blood flow to his hip, uh, and people said he would never play baseball again, and the Royals released him. Uh, they didn't have to release him. They could have tried to say, you know, let's try to let's try to work it out. Let's let's see if you can rehab, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll see if you can come back in 1992. Um, but they didn't. They just flat out released him. They was they saved the money, uh, and 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 frankly, I think Bo took that uh, as a big chip on his shoulder. Like I'll show you. Uh, and so, as a young Royals fan at the time, that was pretty devastating. That that Bo Jackson, who I had a poster of, of in my room, uh, was released. The other big one I think was uh, was the Brett Saberhagen trade, who you also have ranked on here. That that was kind of a gut punch, just because there was no reason for it. I mean, it wasn't like he was asking for more money. It was not like the Royals needed to move him. Like he wasn't a free agent to be. He wasn't like, you know, there was no reason to trade Brett Saberhagen. They just traded him for three guys, and still to this day, I don't think that trade really makes much sense to me. And then the David Cohn trade in 1994, where they traded him a week after the strike ended after he had served as a Royals player rep and, uh, you know, coming off a Cy Young season and uh, coming off also a season with which the Royals actually were competitive and were competing for a playoff spot. And that's kind of the gut punch of like, oh, okay, 
this is how we're going to run things now. So that those are the big those are the really sad departures for me. Um, I don't know, Colin. Is there another maybe a departure that kind of sticks out to you personally? Is like one that really affected you? That maybe it was a number one overall, but was 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 one that maybe affected you uh, a little more than the others. Yeah, there was one on there, and I'm going to make a quick comparison on that because uh, after I wrote, after a friend of mine read this, he he texts me and he goes, "Okay, now do the Chiefs." I'm like, "Well, I don't write about the Chiefs." But <laughs> I think uh, one of the I told him I think the biggest one was uh, Neil Smith, and that's because the Chiefs had always been competitive with Neil Smith, but they just could never get over the hump with him. And then when he finally left, he went to a rival, the Broncos, and won a Super Bowl there. And that was just that stung. Now with the Royals, this guy wasn't on very competitive teams, and it was only you know the Royals kind of wasted uh, his career. They were competitive somewhat with him, but when he left, he finally did win a World Series, and I was glad for him, even though you know it came somewhere else. And uh, so I'm talking about Kevin Apier. Uh, he's just one of my favorite Royals. He had a great 1993 season. He probably should have won the Cy Young Award that year. He maybe even should have won the MVP Award that year. Uh, but once he was traded, uh, once he got out of Kansas City, he went to Oakland. But he ended up a part of the uh, 2002 Anaheim Angels squad. So it was good to see him do that. But, man, it just kind of thinks – it makes you think, like, if we could have a couple more Kevin Apiers on the rotation, the Royals would have been competing in those late nineties uh, on those late nineties teams. And instead uh, that was kind of the beginning of the very dire years. Um, but it just, again, it, it was odd. It's odd. It's still odd looking at him in baseball cards and athletics uniforms, angels, uniforms, Mets uniform. Yeah, and with him, too, it was like years and years of trade rumors. Like, every year it seemed like, oh, the Royals going to trade Apier. And he actually signed an extension to stay here a little longer than he than, than, than uh, he had to. Um, and every But every year it was like, oh, they're going to trade him. They're going to trade him. They're, they're going to trade him to Cleveland or New York or Boston. Uh, and they finally traded him to Oakland, which is kind of surprising. And uh, that trade did, <laughs> did not work out well for the Royals at all. Uh, you know, some of these trades are maybe are sad departures, but some of them are – are mad departure. Like I was mad about something like uh, you didn't have him in your top 16. You had him on just miss, but Jermaine die. That made me mad. I was so upset about that departure because <clears throat> I, I feel like he actually made some indication. He was willing to kind of sign here a little bit longer, but even if you're going to trade him, like to trade him for Nafi Perez, like, come on, <laughs> like what a terrible trade. Uh, so that's probably my maddest departure, but I don't know. Any of these other departures stand out to you, Jeremy? Oh, that Jermaine Die trade, uh, that just brought up so many... I didn't even know how to judge a trade back then. <laughs> I was just like, oh, they made a trade, okay. Even I knew that trade was bad. Well, yeah, you got panned um, from the very beginning, because at least some of these trades, you're like, well, it's prospects, and back then, you didn't know much about prospects. You're like, I guess this guy could be good, but Davey Perez, you could see, you could see his baseball card. Like, okay, this guy hit like 280 for Colorado with no power. Uh, what <laughs> what are we? What am I missing here? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like I should be mad about the Carlos Beltran trade, but I remember being so excited about John Buck and Mark Tehan. Um, I was just like, yeah, I was all in. They got that catcher in that third baseman that they needed, and they were going to be really good. 
Um, the Johnny Damon one made me really mad. He was he was my favorite player, and I remember oh they bought him uh, they bought him a house, and, and he he said he wanted to stay, and then they traded him to the A's, and I'm like, why would you do? That? And of course, you know that ended up being Johnny Damon didn't really want to be here, and and I don't necessarily blame him, but at the time I was so mad at the Royals for that one. Um, gosh, trying to think of another one that made me angry. The I want to say the way Davis trade made me angry, but it just made me sad. I was just like, what are we doing, guys? This this one doesn't make any sense. As uh, I remember Sam Ellinger uh, wrote at the time, like, this is a rebuilding trade, but it's the only one, and you're trying to straddle the line between trying to compete and trying to rebuild, and you can't do it. It doesn't make sense. And, and I was right there with him on that one. I was I was just sad at that point. <laughs> You have the uh, Zach Granke as a third saddest departure. I think I was actually like happy at that departure, not because I was happy to see him go, but because I was like happy for him. Like, like you know, I, I saw his Cy Young yeah. season. It's like, man, it must suck to like not give up any runs every night and not win. <laughs> like, uh, I was like happy for him to like actually go to a contender, and I was happy that we were going to get a good return for him. Although I do, I, th- I think at the time I was a little underwhelmed with what we got from Milwaukee. Of course, I turned out to be wrong about that. But um, I don't remember that being like a necessarily sad departure for me, even though I loved Zach Greinke. I think just because I knew like, look, it's not happening here. Like it's it, go, go, go succeed somewhere else. Young, young Padawan, you've, you've done all you can here. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess it's how you, how you want to view some of these departures. Uh, Mike Sweeney, number four, that, that was kind of a sad departure. Not, it, it was bittersweet in kind of the same respect of like, you know, he toiled in Kansas City for so long for all these bad teams. And and I feel like because of the end, the way he was hurt so much, people forget how dominant he was when he was in his prime and healthy. Like, he was one of the most feared hitters in the American League there for about three, four seasons and just couldn't stay healthy after that. But at that point in 2008 when they let him go and, and he ended up bouncing to the Phillies, um, you know, it was like, okay, well, that's your chance to finally get some postseason action. I'm happy for you. Like, good, good for you. Good, you know. Uh, I'm actually kind of happy that you're going to have Kansas City in this this losing franchise at the time. So I don't know. Some of these some of these are sad, but but also kind of happy in a way. And, and some of these, I think, just made me made me mad all over again. Colin, what are you doing? Still bittersweet. I didn't realize, or maybe I just forgotten that Sweeney that year. I, I can't remember what year it was, but he drove in 144 runs, which is the Royal single season record. And uh, I, I, you just forget how dominant that guy was because they were so bad. Yeah. Yeah, he was a feared slugger. I, I still have White Sox fans now that, are, that just like Mike Sweeney still like terrorizes them in their sleep. So, yeah, he was a, he was a great hitter in his, in his prime, that's for sure. Well, uh, let's wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you kick it off for us this, tonight? All right, so I'm going to come a little bit out of left field here, and I... Uh, unless I've done this one before, because now that I'm saying left field, I feel like I've done this one before. Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, Guy's Grocery Games. <laughs> uh, does that sound familiar to either no, of you? No, no. Are you talking about Guy Fieri? Yeah, Guy Fieri. Okay. Uh, he's got Wait, a... how'd you say that? So, I don't know if anybody remembers what? the old supermarket sweep, uh-huh. but um, he, he has a... a basically a game show that's kind of based on supermarket sweep but instead of just like shopping the grocery store um he gets these chefs on there and uh they they have two or three rounds where they shop the grocery store for the ingredients for a dish that they're going to cook 
And uh, he gives them these wild games, where, uh, like uh, Crazy Can Roulette, where he grabs some cans and he takes the labels off and says, pick which can. And then, then you know, they get like uh, canned ravioli and they got to figure out how to put that into their dessert that they're going to make or something ridiculous like that. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, he has, you can tell there's a lot of friendship between him and the judges that he has. Um, he's, he's got a bunch of recurring judges that are all like Food Network chefs that all just come on there all the time. And uh, every once in a while, he'll have celebrity episodes where they'll, they'll he'll get his judges to go cook, and then he'll the 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 games get ridiculous when he when he has them cook because they're just like you know the super pro Food Network chefs, um, and it's it's a really good time. It's really goofy, um, and what I really like about it is that the the people who are competing on the show um, are, have such a good time that they actually end up becoming friends with each other. Um, you watch other cooking competition shows and people like hate each other and everybody on this show, they, they really like each other and uh, you know, they become friends and, and they'll come back and compete again. And they'll be like, Oh, it's, it's my friend. You beat me last time, but I'm going to get you this time. And, uh, and the chef, the, the chef judges are always like offer constructive criticism. Like, it's not like, Oh, you suck. What are you doing? It's like, you know, uh, maybe if you put a little bit more salt in here, you could bring out this, or maybe if you added a little bit more acid, it would accomplish this. Um, and so it's just like, it's, it's an opportunity to learn. Yes. A little bit about cooking, but mostly it's an opportunity to watch a, a goofy guy and Guy Fieri and his friends just have a good time and, uh, and see what kind of wacky things they can make chefs try and cook up. I, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't get over how you're saying Guy Fieri. Is it Guy Fieri? That's how he pronounces his last <laughs> oh, name. Oh, he Guy Fieri. Fieri. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, I mean, it, 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 he's trying to roll. It, I I would kind of go more towards like Fieri. Mm-hmm. Like try and really, it's it's a rolled R, but he really hits it like oh, it's a okay. D. And so I, I just try and pronounce it like he does. He's had a fascinating evolution of like, he rose to fame and then there was kind of a backlash against him, I think because of his style and he opened a restaurant in Times Square, and that kind of people didn't like that, that the cuisine. But then, like the com- the comedian Shane Torres had a great bit on Conan uh, about how Guy Fieri is like a really good dude. Like all he does yeah. is like promote local restaurants, and he gives all this charity and time and money to to worthy causes. And he's and he's uh, like he, he became an ordained minister and like married a hundred uh, LGBTQ uh, couples. And uh, like like stand up guy, and now, now I think it kind of resuscitated uh, Fieri in in people's minds, and now he's you know he's kind of doing his own thing. So that's that's cool yeah, to see. And he's still absolutely doing um, good things. There's lots of charity giveaways. Um, he has a yearly episode where he'll have um, members of the armed forces come on for like a Memorial Day episode or a Veterans Day episode. And uh, and let them cook, and then you know he donates money to to wounded warriors, and and uh, whenever the celebrities cook, they donate to charities, and even when they lose, they donate some money to charities. So there, there's a lot of good stuff going on there too. He's he seems to be a genuinely really uh, good person who who do, brings a lot of good into the world, um, a, a, as well as all those positive vibes. That's cool. Yeah, you like to see people using their fame in that way. Cole, what do you have for us this week? So. Uh... I just watched the new Predator movie, Prey. Oh, yeah. And I really liked it. Uh, I liked, of course, I liked the original. I also liked the one called Predators with, oddly enough, Adrian Brody as the leading (laughs) action hero in that one. 
Uh, aside from that odd casting, that was, I thought, a very entertaining movie. Uh, the, you know, Predator 2 was okay. Later, the last one before this, The Predator, was not good. But this this last one, I would have to say, is right up there with the original. Uh, it's got Amber Midthunder as the main lead, and she's great. If you've uh, ever watched the FX series Legion, she's one of the, that's a FX's uh, mutant show from Marvel, so she's a mutant on that, but that is a very good show. She was, like I said, great in that. She's great on this one, in this movie. Just a lot of action, a lot of um, it kind of gets back to what it had in the original where it's not, you know, it's not just the action. It's also kind of a, the horror uh, a little bit of you don't know what's going on. And of course, it's a prequel series set in like the 1700s, I think maybe 1718, 1719. But it was it was a good, entertaining jaunt. And I very much appreciated that it was not even an hour and a half long. So, my kind of movie. And where can we find that movie? I think it's only on Hulu. I don't think it went to theaters. I've read some stuff about that. It was originally shot to go to theaters. But then I think when Disney purchased 20th Century Fox, uh, they kind of shifted it and had it go straight to Hulu. But, I mean, you can tell it was shot for theaters. And it's uh, nice to be able to just watch it in the comfort of your home. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was a good one. My fourteen year old son has been like hinting he wants to watch it, and <laughs> I'm okay with him watching some violent stuff. But like, if I remember the original Predator, that's pretty gory. <laughs> I imagine this one oh, yeah. follow, follows the same uh, same path. Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wait till he's a little <laughs> bit older then. So uh, my Roy's review review this week is uh, I, I like history and I, I uh, read a book called Accidental Presidents by Jared Cohen. He's a historian. Um, actually uh, got into it because the History Channel had a, had a nice little uh, mini series about Teddy Roosevelt where they featured Jared uh, Cohen as, a, as, a, as an expert. Um, so I, I read his book about the, the times in history, American history, where the vice president has assumed the presidency because of a death. And it was really interesting. I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a fan of history. Uh, I, you know, you forget that we assume, you know, it's well known that the vice president takes over, but it wasn't always that clear. The Constitution is not entirely clear that if the president dies, that the vice president becomes president or the vice president just assumes the president's duties. Uh, so it gets into some of that, some of the constitutional issues. A lot of the near misses. I didn't know that JFK was almost assassinated before he took office. Uh, after he was elected, but before he took office, I didn't know that FDR very nearly died uh, in an assassination attempt rather than later on uh, when he died uh, in office. Um, but I think the most interesting chapter was about President John Tyler, who you know, you don't, you don't remember much because he was a one-term president. He assumed the presidency because of uh, William Henry Harrison dying, who died after just 30 days. And he was the first one to ever assume the presidency, which was a little bit unclear at the time about you know, if he would actually be president. Uh, and so there's, of course, a lot of undermining of his presidency because of that, uh, especially from the Harrison loyalists. But I think the most interesting part about him is that uh, he nearly died while in office with, with no vice president, which at the time would have left the presidency to the Senate, Senate president. But he almost died in a party that took place on a naval ship. Uh, they, were, uh, they were going to uh, – he wanted to beef up the Navy, and so they were going to show off the na- latest naval weapon, which was a, a large cannon – on a naval ship, 
And so they had a party on the ship, and uh, you know, lots of revelers. You know, the DC elite. Uh, you had uh, several cabinet members and the president himself. And uh, they said, "Hey, fire off the cannon!" So they fired off the cannon. Hey, it's great. <laughs> they fired it off again. Uh, they, but they never tested the cannon before. They did not know its limits, and so they, t- they fired it one more time, and the thing exploded in a horrific explosion that dismembered and killed several of DC's elite, including two cabinet members, and would have killed the president himself had he not been underneath where he got. He was on his way to the deck to observe the, sh- the, the, the firing of the cannon, but got pulled back because they were singing a song he liked underneath, and he was chasing a 17-year-old girl at the time. He was, his wife had died a year before. So he, he, uh, he, he, the, the girl's father ends up dying in this horrific accident. When she learns about this, she falls into, his, into President Tyler's arms, and he, like, this is the President of the United States, carries her off the ship. Uh, they, have to dis, they have to kind of uh, disembark uh, you know, as soon as they can because it's an emergency, and so they only have this wobbly board connecting the, the ship uh, to land, and so he's carrying off the, the ship, and as he's doing that, she comes to and nearly knocks them both off the, the plank, which would have probably killed them because they're at such a great height. Uh, so he almost dies twice there, and she had resisted his advances to that point, but because of the incident, she falls in love with him and ends up having eight kids with him, the last of which he has at age 67, I think. That son has a kid at age 73, and that son is still alive. So John Tyler has a grandson that is still alive. Anyway, fascinating guy, fascinating presidency, even though its policies are rather forgettable. But I don't know. Just History is fascinating to me. It's stuff they don't teach in high school, I guess. But uh, anyway, I would definitely recommend it. There's some good stuff about Truman for anyone that's interested in Harry Truman here in the Kansas City area. Uh, he's a couple chapters on Truman, uh, but also a lot of interesting stuff about some of the near misses. So definitely check out Accidental Presidents by Jared Cohen. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thanks to uh, Ma- uh, Jeremy and Cohen filling in for Matthew. Uh, hopefully Matthew will be able to return uh, next week. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all next time. Hey!